Welcome to the Power Podcast. I'm your host, Malia Warner, and this year we are discussing ways to power our perspective by looking at life from a new angle. Today on the podcast, I'm telling stories and sharing examples to help us become more aware of our human tendency to be me-centric. When you ask the question, is being me-centric a good thing or a bad thing? The answer is yes because it depends on the situation. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about recognizing the differences between those situations. Welcome to episode 59, say hello to your me monster. Hey friends, welcome, so glad you are here. Do you ever ask yourself, am I a me monster? If you do, I can assure you, no, you are not a me monster. The more accurate question would be, do I have a me monster? Yes. If you are human, if you are breathing, you have a me monster. I have a me monster. We all have an inner me monster. Eckhart Tolle calls it our pain body. It's a combination of Freud's id, ego, and superego. Sometimes the me monster is simply driven by our natural instinct for pleasure, comfort, survival, fun. Other times, the me monster is that broken little child in all of us who yearns for attention in order to feel validated and be reassured of our worth. In short, that we are enough, that our life matters. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? Except an unchecked me monster can lead us to do some really interesting things. And what's interesting is that the more out of control our me monster gets, the more disconnected we actually become from those around us. What we truly crave and what we really need as humans is connection. And sometimes the me monster in its very attempt to gain attention and validation actually hampers our human relationships. Did you see the 1980s film Gremlins? So the Gremlins were these darling little creatures, but if you fed them after midnight, they turned into these terrifying monsters with bulging eyes and suddenly went from adorable to your worst nightmare, all because of when they were fed and what they were fed. The goal of today's episode is to empower our perspective by helping us gain awareness of what and when we feed our inner gremlin, our inner me monster. The first time I ever heard the term me monster came from the comedian Brian Regan. And you know, he very well might have been the person who coined the term. I love comedy because it gives us a way to examine complex human issues with the buffer of humor. Intelligent comedy explores real life and helps us to increase perspective in a lighthearted way. This might be illegal. I'm not sure how all the copyright works with podcasting, but I'm going to play for you a clip from YouTube of Brian Regan's bit about the me monster. I'm actually kind of quiet off stage. A lot of people don't realize that. I was at a dinner party recently. A bunch of people that I don't know. One guy talking plenty for everybody. And me, myself, right? And then I, and then myself, right? Me, me. I couldn't tell this one about I because I was talking about myself. And then me, me. 
show notes, I will include this YouTube link because it is a hundred times better when you can see Brian Regan's facial expressions and hear the entire clip. It's from his comedy series entitled, I Walked on the Moon. The term meme monster refers to that part of all of us that is so self-absorbed that no one else matters. It is our natural human tendency to be me-centric, to be me-perfect, and be me-bigger. When the me-monster flares its head in a me-centric way, it manifests as being the most important person in the room, in the conversation, in this situation. Somehow everything here is all about me. And this is the point in the podcast where I get to tell a story on my little brother. It makes me so happy when I can tell stories on my siblings, which is a risky little game because they have stories on me. So I don't know what can of worms I'm opening up here, but this happened last week and it was so perfect for this podcast that I called my brother and asked if I could tell this story. He was a great sport and gave me permission. So last week we were having an Eagle Scout Court of Honor for my son who had earned his Eagle Scout Award. And all my family was coming and gathering. My husband and son had gone over and set up all the chairs and they were set up those hard metal folding chairs. But when I walked over, I noticed that among the hundred metal folding chairs, there was one nice soft cushioned chair set up. And I thought, oh, well, I wonder who set that up and who that's for. That's interesting. And then I set up refreshments in the kitchen. So I go back to the room a few minutes later and I see that my parents and my brother have arrived. And I notice that my brother is sitting on the soft chair. So I go up to him and I'm like, hey, little brother, how did you get the soft chair? And he said, I got here first. <laughs> and I said, don't you think that chair is probably meant for somebody? And he goes, I'm so sorry, I can't even quit laughing. He goes, well, I asked mom if she wanted it and she didn't, so I'm sitting on it. So at this point, I don't know who set up the chair, if it was my husband, if it was my son, and, and who they intended it for, but we have, you know, grandparents coming. We have some people coming that have had some surgery and some medical treatments that they might be a little sore and could benefit from having a soft chair. You know, there are some women coming, not any pregnant that I know of, but it's, it's possible. There's another scout getting his Eagle Award that night too. And he has grandparents coming and possibly pregnant women or women with babies, you know, other people who could probably benefit from having a soft chair. And out of all of those people, my younger brother, probably one of the youngest of, of the group, pretty sure that the soft chair wasn't intended for him. So I said, I think you should probably put the chair back where it was, which he does. And then later I came in and I saw that it was my dad, my dad sitting on the soft chair. And I learned that my son had gone into another room specifically to get a soft chair for my dad. And this really touches my heart because this son is named for my dad. And one of my favorite photos of my whole family life is the day that this son was blessed as a baby. And 
he was blessed in, if you're familiar with Salt Lake City, there's a beautiful building called the Joseph Smith Memorial Building. It used to be the Hotel Utah, and it is absolutely exquisite, a gorgeous remnant from pioneer days with carvings on the inside. And we were able to have his church service, his baby blessing inside the Joseph Smith Memorial Building which was really unique. And my favorite photo is taken outside in the beautiful gardens of Temple Square. And it's a photo of my dad, who is a six foot eight farmer, large man holding this itty bitty, barely four week old baby, his namesake in his arms. And I just loved that this night at the Eagle Court of Honor that my son was thinking about his grandpa, who he is named for, and that he thought of pulling in a soft chair, kind of a chair of honor for his grandpa. Then enters my brother, who had ironically driven my parents to the Court of Honor, and he's sitting on the soft chair. So you can see why this story was so perfect for the podcast, can't you? And thanks, little brother, for letting me razz you here. We all do this. We walk into a room, we walk into a conversation, we walk into a situation, and we are focused on what am I going to do? What am I going to say? Where am I going to sit? What am I going to eat? And it isn't natural for us to look beyond at the bigger picture of what is going on there. This is why I believe that Jesus said that the work of our life is to overcome the natural man. It takes effort and thought, consciousness for us to look and act beyond the instincts of our inner me monster. Jesus gives an example of this in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 7 to 10. And Jesus is teaching, and people are gathering to hear. And as the people gather, Jesus observes how they choose out the chief rooms. They pick the best locations and the best seats to hear him. And so in verse 8, Jesus says, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, Sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. But when thou art bidden or invited, go sit in the lowest room. And then when he that bade thee cometh, he might say, friend, go up higher. Oh, and verse 11, I guess it goes to verse 11. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Jen Hatmaker, in her book, Out of the Spin Cycle, explains how she uses this parable to teach her kids what she calls intentional deference. She describes how when she taught her kids this story in Luke, that she painted the picture of a woman who was totally overmade, big hat, bright clothes, mink coat, sashaying down the aisle and saying, I'm sitting in the front row, everyone. I'm a really big deal. Aren't you impressed? I would never sit anywhere but in the front row. Everyone make room for me. And Jen says, we call her Vivian. But then the mayor arrived and the wedding planner 
escorted him to the front of the church and said to Vivian, oh no, you're going to have to move. This is the mayor for crying out loud. You need to take your fur coat and move to the back. So Vivian then had to endure the walk of shame in front of everyone who had heard her bragging. And Jen goes on to say, our kids need to learn to give up their front row seat. They'll either learn to defer willingly or they'll be booted out by the mayor for the rest of their lives. Shocked at their true rank and swallowed by jealousy. And I love this sentence. When we train our children to take the lowest place, honor will find them through the back door of humility. That's worth repeating. When we train our children or ourselves to take the lowest place, Honor will find us through the back door of humility. She goes on to say, whenever my kids are positioning, insisting on their way, or taking stabs at someone else's success, we have a code word, Vivian. This brings up an excellent question. Well, does this mean my life is never going to be about me? That I am always going to be in the back room? There are plenty of occasions when life is about me, And there are as many, if not more, occasions when life is not about me, and wisdom is knowing the difference. The problem with being me-centric is if I believe that me is the center of the circle all of the time, 100% of the time, I am the sun and everyone else is the planets orbiting around me. I saw a visual, a chart, an image on Facebook the other day, and I thought it was such a nifty tool for keeping the me monster in place, in check, that even though it's visual, I want to try to explain it to you. And the image went along with an article written by, I can't remember his name, I'll call him Todd, telling about when his wife, and I think her name was Susan, had breast cancer, and how so many people said unhelpful, inappropriate things to them. And he wrote an article about how to say appropriate things during tragedy or grief or times of struggle. And I think this applies to any situation in life. Even if it's a happy celebration, if it's the birth of a baby or a wedding or a birthday party or bar mitzvah or whatever, I think it works both ways. So the picture, the image with the article was simply a ring of circles. And the key was to determine who is in the center most circle. So in this circumstance, Susan, because she's the patient with breast cancer, would be the very center of the circle. Then her husband, Todd, would be the next circle. Then parents, children would be like the third circle. Close friends, cousins, siblings going to be in the next circle and so on and so on. So when you go into any situation, circumstance, conversation, having a mental picture of this circle and identifying who the situation is really about, who is the core, who is the center of the circle, helps to be able to determine not only where we sit, where we place ourselves, but what we say and how we act. So Todd tells the story of one day a friend came to visit Susan in the hospital and she was probably a fourth circle friend and she wasn't prepared for how terrible 
Susan would look after her treatments. And as she was leaving the room, Todd left with this friend. And the friend said to Todd, oh my goodness, that was so hard. I was not prepared for that. I was not at all prepared to see her that way. And Todd's observation, and I think this is so wise, is her comment did not help him because he was close to Susan, to the inner circle. And so hearing this woman whine about herself, that she wasn't prepared for it, that it was so hard for her, that didn't help Todd. From her, he needed encouragement, cheering on, words of hope and positivity. But it doesn't mean that this woman isn't allowed to have feelings or isn't allowed to have had a hard experience at the hospital. She just needs to voice those comments to people further out in the circle. So in the circle, only encouragement goes toward the center and then any complaining or griping or sadness goes further outside of the circle. So let's take this example to a wedding. So we have a wedding, bride and groom are in the center. The next circle out is going to be the parents. Next circle out, grandparents, siblings, and then close friends, and they're on and they're on. So let's say you're invited to a wedding. You know that the soft chairs are going to be for the bride and groom, right? For the parents of the bride and groom. When you have this mental picture of who the event is about, who the me is in the center, then you can place yourself accordingly and make sure that you aren't mistakenly sitting in a chair that would belong to a grandparent or to the best man or to the maid of honor. Let's also say that you make some observations about the wedding. Maybe your hors d'oeuvres were served cold. Who would you take that observation to. Not anyone closer to the circle. You certainly don't want to go to the mother of the bride and just make the observation that, oh, it was such a wonderful, beautiful wedding. It was too bad that the hors d'oeuvres were served cold. That's not going to help the mother of the bride in any way, is it? She's going to be so overwhelmed with everything that day anyway, that that kind of a comment to her is only going to hurt. And it's going to hurt your relationship with her. Who can you make the cold hors d'oeuvre comment to? Someone in your same circle level or outside of your circle level. What comments do you make in? How beautiful the bride looks. How beautiful the mother of the bride looks. How lovely the music is. How happy the couple looks, right? Encouragement in, gripes out. Encouragement in, gripes out. Because the day is not about you. So sad your hors d'oeuvres were cold. Guess what? Not your wedding day. So I love that image. I thought that's such a nifty tool that I wanted to share it with you. I think having this mental image of, oh, who is the me in the center of this conversation, in this circumstance and where do I fall into it really helps us to keep the me monster in check. 
if you're the bride and groom, if you're the patient, if it's your birthday, you are the me, you own that, okay? That is your me day. We've talked about being me-centric. Let's talk about being me-perfect. As humans, it is our nature. We want to be perceived as perfect. We are not comfortable with people seeing our flaws and our weaknesses. I want to share a lesson taught to me by a wonderful editor I worked with several years ago in helping me prepare my manuscript to enter a writing competition. And yes, I'm writing a memoir. The irony is not lost on me that I'm doing a podcast episode about the me monster and I am writing an entire book about me. In fact, the word memoir is spelled M-E-more, me-more. I'm writing 350 pages of a me-more. And try to write a book about yourself without sounding like a me monster. It's not so easy. So I submitted the draft of my manuscript to this editor and it came back full of lovely red highlights and places saying, watch out for braggadocio. Watch out. This sounds braggadocio. Beware of letting the reader know of your accomplishments and achievements and sounding as if you are engaging in braggadocio. And I'd never heard this word before, braggadocio. It isn't a common word today. It comes from the 17th century, and it means the annoying or exaggerated talk of someone who is trying to sound very proud or very brave, the act of which makes that person a braggart. So if you've wondered why it's taking me 100 years to get this book out there, well, a memoir is a sort of history, and we all want history to favor us in a good light. So it's taken a minute or two for me to learn how to just tell the story real and out there without soapboxing, without self-helping and resisting the urge to paint myself in the best light. Writing a memoir in and of itself seems to be an extremely braggadocio undertaking. It took me a long time. I, I still hesitate when people ask me what I write to say, I'm writing a memoir because just saying that makes me feel like the most me-centered person in the universe, as if the world needs a book all about me. But I love to read memoirs. I think as humans, we love to share stories. We are natural storytellers. And so we like to hear about each other's experiences and about each other's lives. So how can we do that? How can we share our lives and share our stories without turning the me monster loose on people, without engaging in braggadocio. I love a story shared in the book, Glimpses into the Life and Heart of Marjorie Pay Hinckley by Virginia Pierce. And in the book, Marjorie Hinckley tells the story of her friend who learned to play piano as an adult and practiced so hard and prepared a beautiful piece of music to play in church for the women. In church on Sunday, her friend went to the piano, obviously nervous and shaking. She began to play. She fumbled. She hit wrong notes. She messed up so much that she had to start completely over. Marjorie says she began again and played her piece, and we all loved her better for it. It's interesting as humans that we all have this desperate urge to be seen as flawless, from our skin, to our figures, to our fashion, to our houses. 
when in reality we are drawn to imperfection. As humans, we connect through our struggles, not our wax images. There is powerful connection that comes through the term that Brene Brown made famous, vulnerability, sharing our weaknesses, sharing our imperfections. So an antidote to our natural tendency to be me perfect is the willingness to be real, authentic, and to share our weaknesses as well as our triumphs. How can we avoid this tendency to be me perfect, to avoid braggadocio? Here's a clue. If you have to start a story with, now I'm not saying this to brag, then yes, you are saying this to brag and just go ahead and own that. It's okay to brag. It's okay to be proud of yourself and the things that you've worked hard to do. If I ever make a basket from behind the half court line, you better bet your brownie buttons that I'm telling everybody within shouting distance. We all like to hear a celebratory moment. I think the difference is when you dominate the conversation with one story after another about your amazing feats and nobody else can get a word in edgewise. This brings us to our third and final topic. So we've talked about being me-centric, about being me-perfect, and finally, about being me-bigger. And to illustrate the concept of me-bigger, we're going to go to Brian Regan. (laughs) So I tried to jump in with a little story. I don't want to just sit there the whole night. Right when I'm done with my story, this guy goes, that ain't nothing. (laughs) Didn't mean to waste everybody's time. Telling my nothing story. Here, let Marco Polo speak. He's back with tales of adventure. My story ain't nothing. Why do people need to top other people? I've never understood it, and I see it all the time. Obviously, people get something out of it. At best, people wait for your lips to stop. Yeah, as soon as... Yeah, you, me! You, me! You see the difference? You see, you see that? Now I do. What is it about the human condition? People get something out of that. Why do we do this? Why do we feel like we need to one-up people? Being a one-upper means that when someone shares news, an experience, a proud moment... And you just have to top theirs. For example, a friend tells you, oh, my daughter made the honor roll. And suddenly you find yourself saying, oh, my daughter has a 4.0, was a student of the week, Sterling Scholar and valedictorian. We don't have to do this. It is okay to let people have their moments. I think it's helpful to imagine that people have a balloon and when they're telling you a story, their balloon is inflated and it gets bigger. And if I find myself having that urge to top their story, it's just like me taking a pin and popping the balloon and letting all of the air out of their balloon. It is absolutely okay for me to let people have their balloon moments. It does not take away from my balloon moments. It doesn't make my balloon smaller. I will have plenty of my own balloon moments in life, 
No need to go around popping other people's balloons. And we do this with good news as well as with tragic news. If you find yourself in a conversation with someone who is telling you about a friend or sibling, someone close to them who has been in an accident or who has been diagnosed with a serious illness, you don't need to tell them about all the people you know who have had an accident or been diagnosed in an illness. This moment is about them. Listen and let them have their moment. Remember the circle. Remember encouragement in and listening is the most fabulous form of encouragement and support. Encouragement and listening in. And then if you need to tell the story about the accident that you just saw on the news or your neighbor or someone that you know who's been diagnosed, go outside that circle and share the news outside the circle. Makes sense? This urge to be a one-upper to top other people's stories is evidence of the me monster in action. Theodore Roosevelt is credited as saying, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. We all know what it's like to listen to a braggart. Nobody likes it, right? Nobody likes to sit around and listen to someone bragging about their own amazing feats. We are far more interested in connecting with people, in relating to people. We are more interested in how people feel about us and how we feel about them than about what they've accomplished. I think one of the best ways to combat the me monster is to celebrate others' wins. Know that good things are not limited and that someone else's victory doesn't mean less for you. It's actually the opposite. Good attracts good. The rising tide lifts all ships. When we celebrate and support other people's wins, we are bringing that winning energy into our own life as well. Part of keeping the me monster in check is avoiding the instinct to diminish other people's victories. The more people around you are successful, the more successful you will be as well. So I think the bottom line here, as with everything in life, comes down to balance. If we have an entire world where nobody talks about themselves, then no one would be talking. We would have no stories to share. Our human experience is made up of people taking turns being the center of the me circle. Sometimes that will be me. A lot of times it will be you. And you and you and you and you. And a powerful perspective for guiding those situations is to ask, where do I fit in the circle in this situation? Maybe this is about me or possibly this is not at all about me. So my friends, I hope these ideas help you and I keep our me monsters as cute as Gidget and out of the ugly gremlin zone. Have a great week experiencing different rings of the me circle. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for tuning in. I will meet you back here next week for another episode of the Power Podcast.